If you all would uh, turn with me to Psalm 15. And while you flip there, uh, I want to thank Josh and the other elders for giving your boy a shot and allowing me to be here. Um, I met Josh because of Kyle Kraft, who's sitting over there. So if I say anything that makes you upset, it's his fault. Um, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for him, so blame him, not me. Um, when you get to Psalm 15, would you say amen for me? Amen. All right. That, this side of the room is always faster than this side. That happened this morning, too. Psalm 15, we'll be reading that psalm in its entirety. Hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 15, beginning at verse 1, it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. All of us likely at one time or another have come to a point in life, sometimes we come to this point repeatedly, right, where we, we really ask ourselves, if I could get an audience with God, what question would I ask, right? Uh, for some of us, it might be something trivial, um, like why does McDonald's use mystery meat in their burgers? Um, don't know, right? Um, but for some of us, it might be a question that's of great value and weight, like Job. Job, when he was suffering, just wanted to ask God, why is this happening to me, right? And some of us may be having that exact same question. Um, and what we see when we think about that question, it really kind of uh, displays what's really important to us, right? Um, if we would ask God at that one opportunity, a trivial thing, we probably have very trivial pursuits, uh, to pardon the pun, right? Um, but if we have these weighty requests, those are the things that are most important to us. And so what we have here, David's going to ask a question, and by God's grace, we're also going to hear a response, and this is what's most important to him. And so as we walk through the text, I want you to understand that this is what is the utmost, which should be at the top of our priority list, right? Which means this answer also should be something that we must take heed to. And so um, we're just going to hear about four different really things here. We're going to see this question asked and answered. Then we're going to hear about a qualified individual, and by God's grace, let us hear a quickening invitation. So let's look at this question asked in verse 1. If you look down with me, it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent, and who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now David begins by saying, O Lord. That, that capitalized L-O-R-D is, O Yahweh, he's speaking to this personal, self-existent God who has revealed himself in time and space and is saving acts in, in his word, right? He comes to God to ask this question. He doesn't, uh, he's not speculating. He is not musing. Uh, he's not like Rene Descartes, who was a philosopher in a day way gone by, right? And when he wrote one of his uh, key works, he was just kind of sitting there thinking, right? David is not sitting here thinking about this question. He is going to God to ask this question. And it's of utmost importance that he goes to God. He is not sitting ruminating over thoughts by himself. He is not in conversations with other people about, hey, what would you think it would be like to come into God's presence? Who can get there? Who can do that? He's asking God himself. And we may fly over that to get to the question, but it is of utmost importance because at the end of the day, it is really only God's answer that matters right? Um, as we think about if I was to ask to come to your house, but I was to ask Kyle, hey man, can I go to this person's house? You would look at Kyle and be like, that's not his choice to make, 
because it ain't his house. It's my house. And if you want to get to my house, you need to speak with me and come on my terms, right? If you come to my house without my permission, the door will be locked, right? And that's really what we have going on here. It is God's presence. It is God's abode, God's crib that we're trying to get into. And I, it doesn't matter what anybody else says about that because it does, it's not his house. People speak of, of, of religion as these different paths up a mountain, right? Um, God owns the mountain. It's his mountain. So he's the only one who knows how to get up it. Right? And you can take another path if you want, but it would really, really, really stink to get two-thirds the way up the mountain and find out the path terminates. And it doesn't get there. And so David comes because he acknowledges, if I am going to come into the presence of God, God's got to be the one to tell me how to get there. And so he asked this question um, really in two different ways, same heart behind the question. The first way he says, look down at verse 1, who shall sojourn in your tent? Now, God's tent that he's speaking of here is the tabernacle. Uh, The tabernacle was this tent that the people would go to in order to meet with God, right? You have the tabernacle that had these these sort of layers, these rooms, right? And the deeper you get into it, the more sacred the space is. You have an outer court, you have a holy place and a holy of holies. And in that holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God had placed his manifest presence, Okay? And so when he's asking who can sojourn in God's tent, he's really asking who can come into God's presence. But look at the way he speaks about entering in. He says, who can sojourn in your tent? Not just who can enter. He uses this word sojourn, right? And a sojourner is somebody who comes from a foreign land uh, to live and, and to pass through a land that doesn't belong to him. Because David realizes that at the, at really, when it gets down to it, nobody really belongs in God's presence because he is in a category all by himself, right? He is sacred. He is holy. He is transcendent. There is no one like him. So even the angels in Isaiah 6, the, the cherubim that surround the throne, right, and shout, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The old earth is full of his glory. Even they cover their faces and they cover their feet. Because they're acknowledging we technically don't belong here. We have no right to claim access to the manifold, divine, manifest presence of God. And it doesn't matter how righteous a person is, how pure they may be, no one belongs in God's presence but God himself. And if any of us will come before God, we will always be sojourners, people that are foreigners because we are created finite beings, totally unlike God. And so David asked, who can sojourn as a foreigner in God's tent? Who can be a guest at Motel 777? All right. He asked the question in a second way when he says, who shall dwell on your holy hill? This holy hill is Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which is the place where the tabernacle was located. But the point he's getting at is not just that he wants to sojourn. He doesn't want to just come. He doesn't want to just arrive. But he says, who can dwell? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Meaning I don't just want to stop by and say hey to the wife and kids because I was passing through town, right? But I want to come into God's presence and remain there. I want to abide. I want to live with him. I want to stay with him. I want to be with him. So who is it who has the credentials to enter into this this place, the holy of holies, into the presence of God without getting kicked out? without having an expiration, who can't wear out his welcome, 
Who is it that's qualified? And so what we get in verses 2 through 5 is the answer to this question. And so as we begin to answer this question, I don't want you to think about anybody else but yourself. And ask yourself, uh, is this my resume? If this job, this job position is God's sojourner, right, uh, does, do I have the necessary credentials to enter in? All right. And so he begins in verse 2 with a sort of general um, explanation or description of these credentials, so to speak. He says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So this is one who passes God's inspection, who reflects God's character, and who has God's heart. He passes God's inspection because he's the one who walks blamelessly. So when God in his all-seeing, all-knowing knowledge searches and evaluates this man, this woman's life. He sees an individual who he cannot find fault with. He searches every nook and cranny, his public life, his private life, his thought life, the things he says, the things he does, the things he does and doesn't do. And he looks in the, from every angle. He sees perfection. He has no blame to place on this individual, right? He walks blamelessly. This is a holistic blamelessness, right? This isn't just he's really good on this day of the week, but when he's hungry, right, he's not so good. Or in my case, when he's tired, he's a bit of a grouch, right? No, this is somebody who is perfect, period. They walk blamelessly before God. But not only that, it says he does what is right. He reflects God's righteousness. That which is right is that which is consistent with God's righteous character, We see that righteous character, and David would have been very familiar with this, in God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, right? And in all of God's commandments, they are a reflection of His righteousness for us to behold and see this is a righteous God, but also for us to respond to by saying, I'm going to reflect this righteousness. And this one here is a perfect reflection of God's righteousness. It's as if this man is a mirror, And as he sees the righteousness of God shining before him, there is no crack, there is no smudge, there is no splot or blotch on the mirror that that would prevent some aspect of God's righteousness from shining, right? When we look at him, we see the character of God put on full and perfect display. He does what is righteous. He does what is righteous even when it costs him things, even when it seems like it's not convenient. He is righteous. He does what is right. There is no cause for blame, no cause for guilt, no cause for shame in his life. And how righteous is he, right? Because sometimes we think of righteousness just as somebody who does a lot of good stuff. But even James chapter 2 verse 10 explains to us that even if we keep God's whole law, yet we break it once, we're guilty. It can no longer be said of us that we do what is right. And, And it may sound like that standard is way too high, but I mean, think about it. If you fly out of this parking lot, and you're riding through um, Killarne, and the speed limit is, let's say, 30, and you're riding about 55, and a cop pulls you over, right? You were speeding, but it's not going to do you any good to say, I've never robbed a bank. (laughs) Nobody's saying you robbed a bank. You were speeding. You broke the law. So you're still liable for punishment, even if you kept all these other laws. And this one, this man here, he's never liable for punishment because he has kept the law on every front. He has left no good deed undone, and he has not done anything that ought not to be done. He reflects God's righteousness. But not only does he pass God's inspection and reflect God's righteousness, he has God's heart. Look at it, it says that he speaks truth in his hearts. Now, we think of speaking 
And truth, typically as verbal uh, proclamation, right, we think of sounds and words and things like that. So to think about a heart speaking, it's a bit weird, right? But our hearts do speak. Your heart speaks. Your heart speaks whenever you think a thought, your heart is speaking. Whenever you have an affection, a desire, a passion that wells up within you, your heart is speaking. Because your heart is saying that this thing that I'm responding to or that I'm having this affection toward is worthy of that affection right? So as, as somebody cheers at a sports game and they display this excitement and this exuberant joy, they are saying that this sports team and this cause is worth my excitement and my jubilation, right? When I hate something or I hate someone, I'm saying that person is worthy of hate. That's the truth that I'm speaking. And so this man here, this person is somebody who reflects God's heart. He loves what God loves. He hates what God hates. What God deems to be worthy and attractive and honorable and praiseworthy, that's what he thinks is worthy, attractive, honorable, and praiseworthy. The things that God despises, he despises. His heart is not uh, off kilter from reality, which is so unlike us. Because if we're honest, we treat things that are not ultimate as though they are ultimate. Some of us, may even love our families a little too much because we would rather have our family than have intimacy with God. If I had to pick, I want to love my kids and love my spouse and have all the assurance and security there rather than be secure and stable with God. And if I'm doing that, what I'm saying with my heart is that my family is more glorious than God, but that is not true. Nothing is more glorious than God. And maybe it's not family for you, but you can insert idol here on that. This man here, though, he speaks the truth in his heart. Then this is really what it's all about. See, it's easy. Uh, somebody might be able to say, as you may be thinking about yourself, you're not causing, uh, finding cause for blame, although I highly doubt that, right? But go with me here. Um, and maybe there's no cause for blame, and maybe you feel like you do what's right. But let's see what's in your heart. Jesus in Matthew 5 says, it's not enough to not murder with your hands. I don't even want you to have the affection of the heart that would lead you to murder somebody. Don't be wrongfully angry with your brother. And don't speak out of anger. It's not enough for you not to sleep with someone that is not your spouse. Don't even lust after it. Don't even desire it. Speak the truth in your heart. Love what I love, God says. This person, God's sojourner, he loves what God loves. And so after this general description, we kind of get more specific in verse 3, and we get to kind of see this, this righteous sojourner's relationship with his neighbor. Look at verse 3. It says, Who does not slander with his tongue, he does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Now, this one is not interested in harming his neighbor either in word or in deed. He doesn't slander. He doesn't speak of others in order to deliberately paint them in a bad light. He doesn't use his words to tear down someone else's reputation. Not interested in in using his words to say something negative about somebody else so that he can be one who looks good, right? He speaks well. He also doesn't take up a reproach, meaning he doesn't bring false accusations against someone right? He's going to speak out for justice if need be, but he's not trying to bring justice where there should be none. He's not bringing down guilt on the innocent. He's not misconstruing a situation to make somebody else look like it's their fault. That's not his game, right? And I, I, we may skirt past and go over this kind of thing. Well, I don't talk bad about nobody, but really think about this because in James 3, it says that uh, nobody can tame their tongue. And ultimately, what we're talking about is somebody who has a tamed tongue, Somebody who does not use his words to tear down or corrupt. But as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 
He only says what is fit for building up as fits the occasion. That's what he's good for. And we live in a society where words fly like that. Uh, the, the, the increased, um, I don't want to use this word, but proliferation of social media and all this stuff has made it so that we have access to words and we can say words without any discernment or discretion, and they're just kind of out there, right? And we may say words even personally, or I went on the phone in our relationships, and they're just kind of out there. And the question is, do we ever speak without really listening? God says that every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, but we are the exact opposite. We are so quick to hear a thing, see a thing, and speak on it off-rip, even if we misconstrue the situation a little bit. How often do we even see in our news cycle that we hear a story today, and then later on in the day, the story actually wasn't what we heard it was? Or even as I've heard officers speak of things that have happened in the news, and they say, well, we give the media a report, and then they report on what we give them, and sometimes that report doesn't line up. This person cannot be held liable for that. He does not slander. He doesn't do wrong with his words. And we ought not either. But not only that, he also, just in general, it says he does no evil to his neighbor. Uh, His every action toward his neighbor is an act of love. He loves his neighbor as himself. uh, He's patient. He's kind. He doesn't boast. He's not jealous. He's not arrogant. He's not rude. He's not selfish. He's not seeking his own. He's not seeking the evil in someone else, but he's rejoicing in the truth. He bears all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. He loves his neighbor. He does no evil to him at all. This is a guy who we would love to hate. We would hate him because it's like I hear some girls talk about a woman who they think is really pretty. Like, gosh, I just hate her. Every time she comes around, I'm like, dang, she's really pretty, right? And this guy's like, dang, he's really righteous, And every time I see how righteous he is, I'm like, ah, I don't match up. But at the same time, I kind of like him because he's always looking out for me. (laughs) He's got my back. I can trust him. And when a situation gets rough, I know he's not going to sell out on me. He's going to hang in there with me because he does no evil to his neighbor. Can we say this about ourselves? Right? And I don't mean say it in general. Can you say it at all times? Are you consistently unwaveringly, incessantly, whatever word you want to use, without break or ebb or flow, loving to your neighbor, loving to your spouse, loving to that lady at work who gets on your last nerves, right? Because this one, this God's sojourner, he is. Uh, Verse 4 moves and kind of explains to us his social values. It says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now, it's this, this vile person, a vile person is similar to um, the, this phrase you see in several times throughout, the, especially the early part of the Old Testament, these worthless people. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, worthless people are those who would tempt the people and call them saying, hey, let's go follow after some other God. So vile and worthless people are people who call you to treat like God anything or anyone other than God. They have no regard for the glory of God, no regard for his ways, no regard for his law. They live and they are the most important person in their universe. They are the most desirable people in their universe. And this righteous sojourner, he despises these people. Now, do not, don't, don't mishear this. He doesn't disrespect them. He doesn't degrade them. He's not taking shots at their dignity. He understands that these are people made in God's image, 
right? And so they are not to be treated and, and despised as those who are something less than human. No, they are human, but they are not desirable. They are not people who, whose lives I, I desire to emulate. When I think about life goals, they are not the people I have in mind. Right? When I think about, you, you think of teens who oftentimes have posters in their room, right? They're not on the poster. I'm not desiring them. They're not on the poster of my heart. I'm not chasing after them. I'm not pursuing them like that because I understand that they're vile. And in Psalm 119 verse 118, it says that God spurns the wicked. So this one, not only does he, as we said earlier, he loves what God loves and hates what God hates, but he loves who God loves and he hates who God hates. God is angry with the wicked. He casts them out from his presence. And this one is not going to bring those people in. He's not going to embrace the one who God is pushing away. All right. And it's curious to think about who, who does Jesus push away in the Gospels? It's, it strikes us off guard because we would think that he would push away those people who have really, really bad moral excess. Like they are super sinful, right? Prostitutes, tax collectors, thieves. Uh, murderers. But who do we actually find Jesus hanging with? Prostitutes, tax collectors, thieves, murderers, calling them to repentance. And he delights to find company with them, no matter what their past has been. Yet it is those Pharisees, those who externally, religiously would appear to be righteous, it is those people who he is despising, those people who he is pushing aside, to make it a little more personal, it is the people who would uh, make it up in their mind to come to Four Oaks, Kalon campus, on a Sunday morning to sing hymns and to hear the Word of God preached, and who would come here and do that and say, look at me following God. God must love me. Look how righteous I am. Look at how, how pretty I look for Jesus on Sunday morning. These people trusted in themselves, and though they would look righteous, you may be in the congregation today, and I I can't see you from the outside. I don't know if that's you, but God does, and he sees your boasting in anything other than him as vile. You're despised. This one despises those people, but not only do we find out who he doesn't like, we also find out who he does like. In the end of verse 4, it says he honors those who fear the Lord, so these people who fear God who have seen God and they recognize his authority as the one who is the creator and king. As the song said, he is our sovereign, right? They acknowledge that. They acknowledge the worth and glory of his person and all of his perfections. And because of that, in their value system, God's at the top. They see him as most important. Uh, as as uh, preacher Al Martin says, his smile is their greatest pleasure and his frown is their greatest fear. That's the last thing that they want to incur. That's the last thing they want to provoke right? These people fear the Lord, and they demonstrate that by the way that they live. They keep His commandments. They walk in His ways. And these are the people that He honors. Now, the word there for honor is the same expression used to talk about the way we glorify God. It speaks of uh, ascribing worth and glory and excellence and weightiness to a person. And so here, He's treating them, in a sense, as little manifestations of God. He treats them like heavenly royalty because they are. And the thing to note is that that's the only qualification, that they fear the Lord. He had, that's it. How do we become esteemed in this righteous sojourner's eyes? We fear the Lord. That's it. It's not that we fear the Lord and we look like him, and we talk how he talks, and we dress like he dresses, and we enjoy what he enjoys in terms of entertainment. 
Those things don't matter. It's not about his educational level or his socioeconomic status. If you fear the Lord, then in this one's eyes, you are honored. And that's how it ought to be to us. Our society exalts people, celebrities, right? We celebrate these people who make a living off of scorning God in his ways. And these are people who many of us, if we're honest, some of us, we envy them in some ways. This man sees them as no cause for envy, but those who honor God, those who pursue him, those who delight in his presence and walk in his ways. Oh, these are the people that he delights in. These are the people he chooses. These are the people he treats as royalty. And if we see one who fears God, that is how we ought to treat them, as royalty. Not just that somebody's like, hey, man, uh, as, when I go out to the basketball court, I play on a basketball, and when I know a good player, right, I just kind of give him a nod if I see him, right? Um, it's kind of like mutual bro respect, right? This is not mutual bro respect. This is that person is regal. They are, they are royal. And I, it's an honor even to know that individual. That's how David treats. This is what, he, this, is what this righteous sojourner, this is how he treats the one who fears God. And this is how we ought to treat the saints of God. We ought to be honored to have their presence because as it says in 1 John 1, their fellowship is with God. I mean, think about it. This is not somebody who has access into the Oval Office. This isn't somebody who, who owns banks. This is someone who has an audience with God himself. This is someone who angels are made to serve. This one honors those who fear the Lord with the honor that they ought to have. So those are his social values. Now, um, in the end of verse 4 to the end of uh, chapter 5, or verse 5, I'm sorry, we begin to see not only how he treats others in his social ideas, but we also see his sacrificial integrity toward his neighbor. Um, it says at the end of verse 4, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. And so this one swears to his own hurt. When he made a vow to God, he puts himself on the line. He's not like the guy in Judges 11, who it's one of the worst stories in the Bible. I, I, I cringe every time I read it because he says, Lord, I'm going to sacrifice the first thing to you. As soon as I get back to the house, you give me this victory. And his daughter walks out, right? Um, Should have put himself on the line there. Not his kids, right? But this one, he swears and he puts himself on the line before the Lord. His integrity is so unbreakable that he says, Lord, if I don't do this, you, you kill me. You hurt me, right? He swears to his own hurt in his relationship with his neighbor. He doesn't backtrack on his promises when life doesn't turn out the way it should, right? How many of us, we make promises sometimes and you say, I'm, I'm really going to do this. And when you make that promise, you're not bluffing. Right? You're not blowing smoke. You really, really mean it. Like, I'm really going to do this for you. I want to serve you. I love you and all of that. And then something happens that prevents us from doing it. And it's like, oh, I can't do that anymore. Right? And now we've disappointed someone. Um, our word has been compromised because of situations in life because we didn't want to get put at such a bad disadvantage by keeping our word. This one, when he makes a promise, he keeps it. Even if it means it's going to hurt him. Even if it's going to be a disadvantage, he, uh, he values his integrity above his comfort and convenience. He swears to his own hurt, and he does not change. This one is trustworthy. He doesn't change. When he says something, he's going to do it. But not only that, it says he, he doesn't put out his money at interest, right? Now, this is not talking about business. This is talking about him 
and the way that he gives his money. In, in Exodus 22, it says that when you give to the poor, you're not to exact interest as though you are a money lender, right? So this man does not see himself as some human credit union offering out money at interest. No, when he lends to someone, he lends and says, you know what, pay it back if you can. And if you, if you uh, are going to pay it back, I'm not going to charge you any extra, right? He gives generously and freely, not for selfish gain, right? There are no strings attached. We may give to someone and we may not, may not attach interest in terms of financial interest, but we may attach relational interest to that thing, right? Like, hey, man, it's time for you to redeem on this, this uh, thing that I did for you that one time right? It's been a minute too. So if you would have redeemed that, like right after I did that for you, that would have been one thing. But now it's been some time. Like you still ain't paying me back, right? This man has no relational interest here. When he gives to someone, he's giving freely. He reflects the glory of God, and then that's how we ought to be generous to one another. God has given us the gift of his son with no interest, right? He doesn't even say, I'm going to give you my son, and pay me back by being righteous. There is no payback by being righteous because we're not righteous in and of ourselves. Any righteousness that we work out, it belongs to God, right? So we can't pay, we can't pay God back for Christ. It is a free and generous gift. And this one embodies the generous character of God in the way that he lends to his neighbor. But also, he doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. And so when, when, justice goes forward. As it says in Deuteronomy 16, 19, it says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. And he listens to that. When, it, when justice is being done in the public court, he doesn't say, ah, uh, you know what? I was going to tell the truth, but this guy's going to pay me if I lie. So I'm going to lie because I need that money, right? That's not what he does. He says, even if it's going to cost me, even if it's going to inconvenience me, even if it might uh, cause my stock in, in society to drop, so to speak, and my reputation may be ruined, it might inconvenience some other people, but justice and truth is what matters the most to this individual. He loves his innocent neighbor. He speaks the truth on their behalf. He will not incriminate them. His integrity cannot be bought. It cannot be compromised with money. He will not accept a bribe. This man, his, his, uh, his word is wedded. It's almost as if his, his confession is married to the truth. And whenever the truth happens, when you want to hear about truth, you go to this guy. Because he will not accept a bride. It ends by saying, he who does these things shall never be moved. Meaning, the one who does this, as he approaches God's presence, nobody's going to drag him out. Nothing can remove him from that place. Now, we've gone down this resume. And this is not a hypothetical situation, right? This is God's requirement for approaching him. This isn't David's speculation. I think this is what God desires. No, he's saying this is what it takes. If you will dwell in the presence of God, if you will enjoy fellowship and intimacy and relationship with him, this is what it takes. And so I ask you, do you fit the bill? Is this your resume? When you look at the mirror, is this the individual that's looking back? I think as we hear this, we all recognize that this is none of us. We are all here like Adam. Adam was cast out of the garden, that place of fellowship with God, the place where God's presence was so that he could relate to me. His, because of his sin, he was kicked out. He's on the outside looking in, and he can't approach it lest he have to undergo the flaming sword of God. And that's where we are. None of us can approach to or relate to and dwell with God anymore. No, none of us can because we are sinful. And if you are here thinking that I'm gloating or that I'm, I'm not telling the truth. 
God. And Romans 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All, everyone who has ever existed has turned aside. Together, all of them have become worthless. No one does good, not even when he says our throats are open graves. He says we use our tongues to deceive and that the venom of asps is under our lips. He says our mouth is full of curses and bitterness and our feet are swift to shed blood. That in our and the pathways of our life are nothing but ruin and misery in the way of peace we have not known. There is no fear of God before any of our eyes. That is God's assessment on all of humanity, you and I included. So up until this point, this is all really, really bad news. This is utter hopelessness. I I, I wish that I could accurately convey how hopeless and powerless we are. This literally means that none of us can know God in and of ourselves. And this is what we were made for. This is where we find our ultimate fulfillment (coughs) and purpose and joy and excitement and peace. And none of us have any access to it. You are hopeless, powerless to know him in and of yourself. But this psalm actually isn't about us. It's not about us, not even about David. This psalm is about God's sojourner, somebody who is totally righteous, blameless in integrity before God and before man. And thanks be to God, I know a guy who fits the bill, and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus passed God inspection. As God looked at him, he could not, he did not despise him, but he said, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. He reflected God's righteousness. He said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill them. He reflected God's heart. He said in John 5, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment, my evaluation is just because I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He is the one who never slandered with his tongue. He never did evil to to his neighbor. He never reproached anyone, even when those people were doing the same thing to him. And Peter, it says he did not revile. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. But he committed himself to the one who judged justly. Uh, He is the one who swore to his own hurt when he made a promise to redeem his people even though it was going to mean the pain and, and, and horror and torture and torment of the cross, he did not backpedal in the garden. Thank God he did not backpedal in Gethsemane. He said, I don't want to go. But Father, glorify your name, because that's what he was most concerned about. When he healed the sick and when he raised the dead, when he was generous with his abilities, when he served his neighbors, he did not demand any payment from them. He gave himself freely and even on the cross. And now that he is raised from the dead, he offers us not at interest. He doesn't offer us himself at some high price. But as he says in Isaiah 55, come, come. All of you who are hungry and thirsty, come buy milk and buy bread without money and without price. He is free. He is generous. This is about the unstained, unblemished, unapproachable righteousness of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And because he is so righteous, God raised him from the dead and heaven has now received him as the one who now sits at God's right hand in his presence and he cannot be moved. No one can come and accuse him and say, you ought not be here because he is righteous. He has earned a position in God's presence. 
And all of this would just be really cool news, but not beneficial for us, except for one fact. Now, even though Jesus earned this intimate fellowship and access to God, God abandoned him. He sent Jesus to the cross. And although he had, he had earned nothing but the smile and pleasure of God, on the cross he felt none of it. He felt nothing but God's displeasure and wrath as he hung there. And every eternity for every sin was almost seems compressed down into Christ on the cross in the omnipotent, all-powerful wrath of a God who hates sin perfectly was all channeled on him. And he bore hell hanging there on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I haven't, de- I haven't deserved this. I've done all that you've asked me to do. I've done everything that's what caused me to have your pleasure. And now all I feel is your wrath. But he was abandoned on the cross so that we could be welcomed in his place. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in him, we will become the righteousness of God. And even now, God offers Christ to you if he is not yours. God offers Christ to you. He can be your righteousness. He can be your all-access passage to the VIP room of God's presence. Just by faith. If you would simply reckon the promise to be true, he is yours. And those of us who have come to Christ by faith recognize now As we have heard of this qualified individual, this quickening invitation is to come to Christ. And now that we are in Christ, to rejoice because we now can ride into the Holy of Holies on Jesus' coattails. Uh, In Hebrews, it says it like this, that therefore, um, now that we have confidence, access to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through the veil of the curtain, that is through his flesh. And now that we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us approach the throne room of God. Though saint, you can enjoy intimacy with him. Intimacy that's not dependent on you. Do you realize that even when you have a pathetic week reading your Bible, the intimacy that Christ has earned, it's still unshaken? Christ is not dragged out of God's presence by your lack of prayer. So that means that you can always walk with God, even when you haven't walked with God, because your ability to walk with God isn't determined by your goodness, but by this one who can never be moved. And if he can never be moved, that means we cannot either. So let us glory in the fact that we have infinite access to a holy God on account of someone else's righteousness not our own. And as those who have obtained this access through Jesus's righteousness, let us walk blamelessly. Let us do what is right. Let us speak the truth in our hearts. Because if we do not do that, now we have access, but our experience of this intimacy with God, yes, it does hinge on our obedience. You, You won't be able to feel the smile of God's pleasure if you're constantly living in sin right? Like, um, my wife is over there. She's lovely and forgiving, and so I praise God for her. But if I'm real, if I, if I do some dumb stuff, I am not going to get to enjoy her smile, at least for a little bit. Probably not for too long, because she's pretty good with forgiveness. But I'm going to feel that wrath for a little bit, right? That doesn't dissolve my covenant with her, my relationship to her. But what that does mean is that if I want to enjoy intimacy with her and be uh, close with her, I kind of got to be a good husband. 
And in the same way, if I will enjoy, Christ has inaugurated this relationship. He has brought us now into fellowship with God. But if we will enjoy it and experience it, we must walk in these ways. But even when we haven't, and maybe you haven't, there is still one whose righteousness is unblemished. You can repent today, turn to God, and he will accept you. Sojourn in his tent, dwell on his holy hill, and behold the beauty of the Lord. Let's pray.